Salam guys, I'm Mohsin. Welcome to this episode of Millionaire Muslim. Before we get into this episode, we just wanted to spend a few seconds telling you about Islamic Finance Guru or IFG for short. Mohsin and I co-founded IFG in 2015 because we couldn't find content about personal finance and Islamic finance for Muslims like you and I. Nowadays, alhamdulillah, we reach an audience of hundreds of thousands and our goal is to keep providing great content to help you guys. So if you're looking for halal investments and Islamic mortgages or startup funding, check us out at islamicfinanceguru.com. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can get me on mohsin at islamicfinanceguru.com and you can get Ibrahim on ibrahim at islamicfinanceguru.com. Enjoy the episode. Moving forward, I just want to start zooming into the more, I'd say, tricky areas, which I think what people want to hear and talk about is when it falls into like the gray area or I'm working in a bank, but I'm not directly assisting in interest or I'm working in an insurance company, but I'm just working in HR. Where does all that fit in? This whole discussion of these kind of like gray areas, it falls under a concept in fiqh and Islamic law of i'ana al-ma'asiyah, which really just means assisting in sin. I'ana means assistance, supporting, assisting, and ma'asiyah is, is a sinful, illegal activity. In this discussion, what we're talking about is maybe what you're doing is not in and of itself sinful because that was addressed earlier, what we just discussed. So the activity you're doing in and of itself is not strictly impermissible, unlawful or illegal, but rather potentially leading to or the next step after that can be a sin or the second step after that can be a sin. So it's we're talking about causality, we're talking about proximity and remoteness from sin. This is where we are now. How much proximity is there between you and the sin? Or how remote are you from the sin? And this is now the discussion here. And this is where majority of many of our jobs fall in, right? Many of the things that we ask questions like on the Fatwa Forum, that we have an IMG, which is a brilliant resource. And I would recommend everybody to use that. The Fatwa Forum, if you can go on there, there's many questions there. If you have a question, you're more than welcome to ask a question there. It's just where we have discussions on, or people can freely ask questions on Islamic finance and anything financial related. So moving on to the next slide, when it comes to this, there's two views, this whole idea of being in proximity to a sin or being remote from a sin. When can we say, or how can we determine if a person is close to a sin or if he is remote from the sin? So there's two views among scholars here. And why is that? It's because of the way they've reasoned. And you'll say scholars always have two views, right? Or there's always iktilaf. And that's fine. That's the nature of the thing. Why? Because these are issues which are based on interpretation, based on juristic reasoning, based on the human mind, the way people analyze things. So one mind does not think the same like the other. They're using the same tools, yet they'll see different values, they'll see different nuances. So it's completely fine to have these kind of views. Rather, it enriches the discussion. That's why I'm presenting both views, just so you get a complete and wholesome picture of the entire discussion. And the verses, we have many verses of Qur'an and hadith which underpin this whole discussion. For example, Allah mentions in the Qur'an, وَلَا تَعَاوَنُوا الْعِثْمِ وَالْعُدْوَانِ That do not support one another عَلَى الْإِثْمِ وَالْعُدْوَانِ In sinful activities, right? Don't support one another. Don't be a support to one another in sinful activities. Another verse tells us, Allah mentioned that don't swear at those who worship other than Allah. Don't swear at them because they will swear back at Allah. So Allah is preventing us to, to be a cause to sin, even in that verse. The Messenger of Allah mentioned in the hadith that don't sell arms, weapons to people of fitna, 
or people who will go and do murder or go looting or do whatever, hijacking and these kind of things. The people of fitna, the people of mischief, those who rebel because you're providing them, you're facilitating them with weapons with which they will go and kill and murder. So these kind of verses in the Quran and Hadith, scholars have taken up principles from here. These are like the underpinning narrations and primary sources. But then when it came to the actual application, there were two views. The majority of the scholars, when I say majority, it's like even from the Hanafi school, Imam Muhammad and Imam Abu Yusuf, the two students of Imam Abu Hanifa, and also Imam Malik, Imam Ahmed bin Hanbal, most of them, the framework that they apply is that they very strictly hold on to this this verse of the Quran, and they rule out anything where there's like a causation or proximity. For them, proximity means that causality. And so what they look at when I write for what and whom, they always consider that what are you supporting? What are you doing? For whom are you doing it for? So the scholars mention, for example, under this is if a person leases a property to somebody who clearly says, I'm leasing this property to have a liquor store or have a casino. According to all these scholars, they apply the for what and whom analysis. So because it's clearly being done for something unlawful, for them, they'll say, look, there's a causal link up here that causality has been established, proximity has been established. The moment sin comes into the discussion and you are the provider, then for them, the for what and whom analysis rules this out. They'll say this is also, this study should not be permitted for them. It'll be discouraged, disliked altogether, and a Muslim should not do that. That's also the view of, for example, the global standard setting body, IOFI, in the Sharia standards. They have the same view. According to them, you cannot lease a property which will be used for impermissible activities. It's not Sharia compliant. So they also go with this view. So the for what and whom analysis, they always consider what the user, the beneficiary or the tenant, the lessee, what they'll be doing with the activity. Likewise, if you're an employee, you're providing something to somebody, but you know clearly they mentioned, I'm going to use this in sin. I'm taking your or I'm using your services or this item that you made, you're a developer or something, although it can be used in multiple ways, but they come and tell you clearly that I'm going to use this only for haram or for interest or for selling insurance or marketing, things from the adult industry. Then, according to this group of scholars, again, because the for what and whom analysis, they'll say it's not permissible because clearly now in the discussion, in the contract, or even in discussion, what's come about is a sin that's been identified. The way they break this down is, Assistance in sin can be, like you could say, four ways altogether. One is you have the intention to assist. Whenever an employee has an intention to assist in sin, that's always impermissible according to these scholars. And that's quite obvious. Number two, there's clearly mentioned in the contract, either employment or leasing or even selling. So if I'm selling a multi-purpose good, for, for example, I'm selling grapes. This is a famous example. But the person clearly comes and tells me, I'm selling these grapes. Or I'm buying these grapes to make wine and alcohol. This will be a problem according to these scholars. Thirdly, it's you sell an item which can only be used in sinful activity. So even in here, it's as clear assistance, right, in sin. So these three scenarios, these scholars say, are all impermissible. When there's an intention to assist in sin. Number two, there's clear mention of the beneficiary, the tenant, the lessee using, or even the employer using what you're providing, or even the buyer using what you're providing in sin. They'll say it's disliked, discouraged, or even impermissible. Or thirdly, the item can only be used in a sinful way. Then also, according to these scholars, it'll be impermissible for you to do that particular role or job. 
But then they mentioned that's when it's clear. How about if you are a cause? Meaning what you're doing is in and of itself is not problematic, but the next step is problematic. So what you're doing is not problematic, but the next step is. So they mentioned here now, either you're in proximity to sin or either you are remote from the sin. How can you be in proximity to sin? It's when what you're doing is so close that the next step after will be sin. There's not multiple steps between you and the sin. Rather, the next thing that will happen is sinful activity. And the example appear the scholars give is what I mentioned about renting and leasing. Although renting and leasing the property in and of itself is lawful, but because now the person will be leasing this, will be using it in an impermissible way, therefore it becomes impermissible, or at least strongly discouraged, or makrut tahrimi. And then the final point of these scholars, the majority of scholars, what they say is, when are you remote from the sin? You're remote from the sin when you provide something, there's no clear indication of how that person is going to use that item, or even he may go and do something later on. And whatever you've provided requires further intervention, further input from that person to get the final sinful activity. So you've not provided something which can be directly used in sin, but rather they have to put their own kind of effort, labor into the item, like add some kind of like, you talk about GDP adding value. So they've put some kind of labor into it and then created something else sinful. That will be then sinful, but that will be remote from you. It'll be remote because there's intervention required further down the chain and the sin has occurred right down the chain. This is like how the majority of scholars discuss it. It's very complicated. Even for me, I find this analysis quite complicated. And you'll see there are some scholars who have this framework. It's not always easy to fit where a job falls because sometimes these things overlap, right? Sometimes it's in proximity, sometimes it's remote, sometimes it's clarity in the contract. So this kind of analysis, it's very difficult. So they have this kind of for what and whom. I'm just going back to our slide. They look at the sector and industry. So Clearly, if you're working in the insurance sector or you're working in the banking sector, the for what and whom or the sector analysis, which they do, is because whatever you're doing, the next thing is that we use for the impermissible activity. So they'll say that's impermissible as well. They have this kind of conveyor belt. And these are just like notions I'm giving you in principles. They look at this whole kind of sinful activity and assistance in sin as a conveyor belt, as a chain, as a process. That you are part of that process. And therefore, if the end result is sin, you are part and parcel of that chain, then for you to be in that chain is also impermissible, it's sinful, or, or strongly discouraged, depending on what exactly you're doing. And finally, proximity is defined as what employer, client will do with your service. That's what defines proximity for these scholars. What is your client or your employer doing with the services that you're providing? Now, this is a view of the majority of scholars. Personally, I don't hold that view, and neither do I give fatwa on that view. The view that I give fatwa on is on Imam Abu Hanifa's position. Why? Well, how does he look at things? He looks at things much more technical, it's much more legal. What he says is, you can't look at an employee and you can't look at a contractor and you can't judge them on what another person will be doing. How can I be held responsible, liable for what they will do with their own volition? They're completely independent. They have free will. They have their own discretion. How can I be responsible for something that person will do? That's why Allah says in the Quran, like no person shall bear the burden of another person. Every person is judged independently in that sense. So every person is using his own volition, his own discretion to develop or create or do whatever they're doing. As long as my job, my role in and of itself is permissible, according to Imam Abu Hanifa, he says that role is technically valid, meaning 
when I say technically valid, remember it's illegal, therefore the income that I receive is lawful. Obviously, this doesn't mean he encourages people to start doing any job and all jobs, but rather he's got a very technical analysis. He's looking at it from a very legal perspective and it's very nuanced. So he does what an in and of itself analysis, where the majority of scholars do a for what and whom analysis, he does in and of itself analysis, meaning what's the job you're doing right now? What is it? And I'm going to give you classical examples from both scholars so you understand exactly how these kind of things apply. Also, he looks at where the majority of scholars talk about this chain idea that you're part of the chain. He says, no, you're not part of the chain. The moment another person comes after you in the chain who uses his independent discretion, his volition, he's got his own free will to do what he wants. He then does something sinful or he passes it on. You cannot be held responsible for what he does because that intermediary has cut you off from the chain of sin. He cuts you off. And so this is Imam Abu Hanifa's understanding and his principle. So he looks at, he says, clearly, whatever your job is, that's what you're being paid for. You're not being paid for what everybody else is doing in the company. Your service that you're delivering, you're only responsible to deliver. Remember, we talked about this idea of me delivering a service which must have value in Sharia. So he says, if I am delivering something which has value in Sharia, meaning it's lawful, my income will be purely in lieu of that. It's not going to be in lieu of what the whole process has done. Rather, I'll be paid from a Sharia perspective. I'll be entitled to be paid for my service. Look at some of the examples. Imam Abu Hanifa was of the opinion that if a person happened to transport alcohol, just say you're walking and somebody requested you, oh, can you please pick up this case of alcohol and drop it to that street there? I'll give you $5 for this or five pounds. And you just happen to do that as a Muslim. This is obviously incidental. It's not something he would encourage you to do as a practice. But if you did that, his analysis is, look, what are you doing? He's not saying, who are you doing it for? But what exactly are you doing? You're just transporting. You're just lifting. That's how he does it. He doesn't look at the entire like sentence. He says, look, what's your job here? You're lifting. The sin of will be done with alcohol later on. That can't be ascribed to you. Because all you're doing is lifting it from one place to another place. It'll be the people down the line who'll go and drink or whatever they do. That's also uncertain. It's also uncertain what will happen. But... That'll be applied later on. So he's of the view that a person, he can transport alcohol from one place to the other. Quick question. So I, I feel like in this whole discussion, there's a bit of a continuum going on where either you look really, really wide or you look really narrow. But arguably, you could have these kind of counterintuitive cases where even the tattooist, they could say, well, why don't you just kind of zoom in really, really like granularly and say, look, the act of taking this metal thing and then touching a skin with it is not in of itself impermissible. And they go down that line. Or the lawyer who is drawing up, I don't know, a debt financing agreement, he says that literally the act of me typing in of itself is not impermissible. In other words, what they're trying to do is reduce down a haram element, almost negligible. And in most cases, it is almost negligible. If you take that analysis to its logical conclusion, you only have fleeting instances that, you know, the, if you say the tattooage, the actual haram is the moment when that ink enters that body, that's when the actual haram occurs. Out of that tattooist's eight hours at work, potentially at that time of ink entering the body only takes place by about five minutes. I suppose what I'm asking is, what's the framework that the Imam Abu Hanifa position would take 
on where to draw the line. It's a very good point. Remember, what we're looking at is one is what you're doing, and then when the sin occurs, it'll be somebody else doing that sin. You cannot be doing any sin whatsoever. From his framework, there should be no sin in your service at all. From your tattoo example, the way I reconcile this is, remember, if your job title is a tattooist, that's your job title, that's your core service, then you as a Muslim should never take that. But yes, there's definitely a discussion which we'll discuss when we talk about lawyers towards the end, when you're doing multiple things in a role, how yeah. do we then look at that? Because that role is a very generic role, but then you might be asked to do certain things in that role which are not Sharia compliant, so which need fleshing out. But from Imam Hanifa's perspective, it's we're looking at as long as the employee is employed. Now remember, from this transportation perspective, you're only doing transportation, and he says look, transportation in and of itself is purely lawful. It's just an act. So he looks at what's being done, and right? it's completely lawful. Another example which will shed more light on this is we just touched upon earlier leasing a van or leasing property to somebody who tells you i'm going to use this for a liquor store a wine store or whatever right i'll be doing some haram activity according to imam Wanifa, he says you are not responsible of course he'll not encourage this his view is not encouraged here like he doesn't say oh you go and do this rather and i'll talk about this as well how he differentiates here and when I talk about my position in all of this and how I apply this in today's world, I'll touch upon Imam Abu Hanifa's reasoning here as well. But he says, if you were to do that legally, technically, your income would be lawful because what are you being paid for? The space that you're providing. What that person does is between him and himself. He's responsible and he'll be accountable for it. You won't be accountable for giving that space. Whereas other scholars will say that's not permissible, as we touched upon. Another one, which is that you might be really shocked and surprised, is being a swineherd. You are herding pigs. And this is mentioned in the classical books. I'm not just making these things up. This is mentioned in the books of fiqh, the classical works of scholars. So according to Imam Hanif, he says, being a swine herd in and of itself is permissible. Meaning if a person is a Muslim is walking around, and this is how we interpret these. We read these texts. You can't look at them in a vacuum. These scholars were God-fearing scholars, right? They were people of taqwa, piety. They understood the entire Sharia really well, the Quran and Sunnah. Legal books are usually written in vacuum. You have to apply the variables that come from scholars. So something is written there, but it doesn't mean that this is what the scholar is encouraging. It doesn't mean that. But he's talking about is legal books are legal codes. They're written for legal analysis and for technicians to read and understand the legalities behind this. So it's a legal language. So in his legal language, he says that if a person was to do this, to say it happened, that a person ended up, because there's no job, but he goes and becomes a swineherd and gets paid £100 for one, two hours, if that's how the rate is in that market, then that will be lawful because all he did was herding. He wasn't eating swine. He wasn't touching it or doing anything other than just like herding them, moving them along with a stick or whatever it may be. So he says that in and of itself is not impermissible. That activity that the person has done is not impermissible. Whereas all the other scholars will say, no, that's not permitted because you are part of some process. And they take that macro view, which Ibrahim rightly pointed out to, that macro view that you're part of some kind of industry which is attached to impermissible activities. So that macro view, they say, nope, you're part of an industry which the core product is impermissible, therefore it's not permissible to be that industry. Imam Hanif on the other hand says, no, it's a micro thing. Every person is responsible or it can only be tasked with his own services. I cannot be held accountable for the entire sector. And so my income is only in lieu of my services. As long as my service is lawful, then the income will be lawful. So he's looking at it from a very micro legal sense where you're looking at income and service only. 
And he's trying to establish when is income lawful. That's his key. So he's not encouraging this practice. Rather, it's from a technical perspective. He's saying, if this was to happen, then this would be the ruling, meaning the income would be lawful. And that's how legal works and legal books, that's the language that they talk. There's no variables mentioned in the legal text. You have to come and apply those variables in real life to see where they fit. Just because he says this in the book, it doesn't mean that's how it's applied all the time. The application is done by expert scholars. Finally, another example, just to add more weight to this kind of discussion is building a church. And again, it's a classical example mentioned in the books of fiqh. Imam Abu Hanifa says building a church would be lawful because what's that person doing is only building. And remember, in all of this, you're just looking at the job must be lawful. It can't be, oh, I'm making a tattoo. So in the example which Ibrahim mentioned about a person, he's putting the needle down. The whole thing is impermissible. You're creating a tattoo upon a person or in, in any other scenario where you're doing unlawful activity. Even according to Imam Abu Hanifa, that would be impermissible. What we're talking about in this example is the job in and of itself is permissible. You are not doing something which is sinful. All you're doing is building. Then any sin that comes will be done later, not by you, it will be done by somebody else. So you cannot be held accountable for that and your income is in lieu of your service. And so these are some examples. And of course, in all these examples, wherever Imam Abu Hanifa stands, his students, Imam Abu Yusuf and Imam Muhammad, stood opposite and said, no, we don't agree with that kind of reasoning. We take the macro view and say it's impermissible. And so do the other scholars. That's where they stand. So moving on to the next slide. Now, this is where my view comes in and, and the views of teachers and many colleagues that I have. And this nuance of Muslim countries and non-Muslim countries, this is my personal kind of dichotomy that I've done. When I deal with these issues, how do I deal with it? When it's in Muslim minority countries, so wherever Muslims are a minority, like in the West, I favor the view of Imam Abu Hanifa. It's extremely pragmatic, extremely realistic. Why? Because we're already disadvantaged to some degree. It's very hard for people to find all the time lawful jobs. It's not easy. We're always in competition. Sometimes you just got to take what's being given. Also, the way the world works, you have to get some kind of training in a certain sector before you can go on to a Sharia compliance. So for example, lawyers, I know many lawyers and even Ibrahim as a corporate lawyer will probably tell you that you have to get a training contract somewhere. And what I've heard from friends, training contract is probably one of the most difficult things to acquire and get. So imagine trying to apply for a training contract, but then every time this kind of analysis has to take place, it just makes it very difficult. You can't even be a lawyer. And if you want to succeed in Islamic finance, you need some kind of experience in conventional finance, whatever it may be. Obviously, as lawful as possible, but that experience is gained. So we're already disadvantaged. Jobs are not easy to acquire. The entire worldview here is, which it doesn't align with Sharia in terms of being an interest-based economy and all the other things, right? So in that scenario, I feel with a micro view in this context, where we look at the what exactly are you doing in your job? Is your job lawful what are you doing right if the job is unlawful then you can't do that as according to imam Allah. however if your job is lawful meaning you're just in security you're just in hr or you're just in compliance and i'm going to talk through all these examples i'm going to look at banks i'm going to look at insurance companies i'm going to look at supermarkets i'm going to look at all the different jobs and we're going to break them down and discuss each one so you can start applying these principles right because the whole thing is application for me i want the students to go away here with skills to be able to apply this tomorrow and be able to educate other people. So when it comes to minority countries, the job description is key. Number one, as the bullet point says there. Number two, your income is lawful if the job description is permitted, it's legal in Sharia, because that's what you're being paid for. And number three, there's no doubt about it. It's always better to seek a Sharia compliant company, meaning it's always better to not work in 
conventional finance. There's no doubt about that, right? No one's going to deny that. But your income, your role, your kind of journey in your life at that moment in time, you were in the financial sector by doing a halal job, then according to Imam Hanif, and this is where my personal inclination is, that it would be lawful as long as your job is lawful. But then we'd always encourage you to go and find or have an intention to grow. And this is what I do. I always advise people that if you are in that sector right now and you're doing something lawful, you have nothing to worry about in terms of your income. Your income is lawful. But you should have some aspiration long term that I want to acquire these skill sets from here and these learnings, experience, and put it towards the Islamic finance sector. Because we need people who have experienced conventional finance and apply all the experience in Islamic finance. We need that because they'll be able to differentiate, they'll be able to distinguish between what happens in the conventional sector and what should happen in the Islamic finance sector. So it's powerful in that sense. But when it comes to Muslim countries, my advice is, and I advise many of my clients who want to invest in REIT funds, for example, or want to buy commercial property in the GCC or in Muslim-majority countries, whenever I advise them, I advise them according to the IOP standards, and that is it's not permissible to lease to a tenant or lease a property to any tenant who will be doing something impermissible. Because in that scenario, taking the macro view makes sense because the macro view is supporting Islam reasonably well, and there's more opportunities in Sharia-compliant jobs as opposed to non-Sharia-compliant jobs. Whereas up here, it's more reverse. Probably the more opportunities there are, are for those who have a finance background or a law background or these kind of skills, accounting background, you're probably more likely to get opportunities in a conventional setting as opposed to an Islamic setting. Whereas in a GCC or Muslim countries, you're more likely to get opportunities in, you could say, in Sharia-compliant or at least Muslim-oriented institutions and organizations. So, Mufti, I'm going to chuck out a counterpoint to that, which is I think actually we're living in a very, very global world. And even in Saudi Arabia or Dubai or wherever you go, it's the same law firms. I know the legal sector very well. It's the same law firms who are there and they're doing the same things as they're doing anywhere. And if you're a lawyer in Saudi Arabia, I think you would be facing exactly the same option set of jobs as you would in the UK. I don't think that there's necessarily more options to do Sharia compliant things anywhere. What I would say to that is I would never answer, like in terms of jobs, the job market, I don't know the way that you could say the kind of industry is there and the climate. So I would tell people from whoever lives in, in Saudi Arabia, for example, consider your local scholars. That is probably the most wise thing to do. But in terms of leasing, the advice I give definitely when it comes to leasing properties or investing in REIT funds is that I never allow anyone to lease a property to somebody who will be doing something non-sharia compliant because at a macro level, and this all stems from, and I touched upon this earlier, Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah, he was of the opinion that it's not permissible to lease property in the cities because cities were like the citadels of Islam. That's where all the Muslims were. But in the outskirts, in the countryside, you'd have little like villages or towns where non-Muslims would reside. He was of the opinion that when it comes to the cities, it's not permissible to lease property to those who will establish a church or establish some kind of temple. But in the countryside, it's permissible to do that because your only customers will be most likely non-Muslim. So it shouldn't be that you are losing income because the only customers you can get are non-Muslims. But he said when it comes to Muslim cities, you shouldn't do this because there's more opportunities to lease to Sharia-compliant customers and tenants. And so that's where this kind of my own analysis came from, drawing from his view, being true to his view and his kind of reasoning. I find it to be very 
appealing in this. But when it comes to specific jobs, I would say if a person is living in a country, like a Muslim-majority country, obviously you'd be asking your local scholars, they would guide you more. But this is just the way I see things and the way I analyze things. I love it when you're more liberal than I am. <laughs> we'll continue that discussion later on. To be honest, just to touch upon this, I find there's also a differentiation I make between employment and being a contractor, being self-employed. Why is that is we have to really look at it from a sense, look, an employee, why does Imam Wanifa's opinion sometimes helps us in the UK or in the West? Look, we're living in a world where contracts are standardised. Contracts are standardised. There's boilerplate clauses all over the contract. You always put up or shut up kind of approach. You either take it or you leave it. You cannot negotiate as an employee. Not always. It's very difficult. If you don't agree with a term, sorry, go away because there's a hundred other people waiting to get the job. So employment, and this is more of like, I wouldn't say a philosophical thing, but employment is... I wouldn't say slavery as well, because that's a huge statement to make. But employment, you don't have the freedoms per se, where you can negotiate. It's like a tenancy contract. If you're taking a house on rent, it's a standardized contract. Like all these boilerplate clauses in there. For example, you can't nail something to the wall. If you want to put something up, you can't nail it. In most contracts I've seen, it has these kind of clauses. Now, you can't go to the landlord and say, I don't want this in here. They'll say, well, tough luck. This is how it is. The interest clause, there's late payment fees. You cannot go to the landlord and say, oh, please take this out. It's not Sharia compliant. So as a Muslim, it's very difficult for you. And Sharia has this principle of Musawat. Musawat means like a level playing field. All of Islamic finance rests upon this major principle of level playing field. In most of these contracts, we don't have a level playing field. We are disadvantaged because we cannot negotiate. We're just not empowered to do so. You're always lower than the other party. So employment is not as simple and straightforward. There has to be more flexibility to allow certain things because a person, no Muslim, and I can say this with full like confidence, no Muslim wants to take a job where he has to do something impermissible. I've never found a Muslim who says, I enjoy doing a debt financing contract or I enjoy developing this kind of software so it's using riba. I don't find that. But it's just the fact that you can't find anything else. You're put in a situation. You're an employee. You can't even sometimes say no to do something. You're stuck in a way. Your will cannot be exercised or you don't have that discretion per se. It's been really curtailed. As opposed to a contractor, whereas a contractor, now you have clients, you can say, do what you want. It's on your terms. So I do also find this kind of difference between a contractor and employee where I feel more sympathetic towards an employee as opposed to a contractor. So where I would potentially, and again, it's a case by case, I would find more leniency or see a more kind of sympathetic approach for an employee, looking at all the different variables at play. And look, what we're doing here, we're looking at different factors here. And this is what the job of a mufti is. You're looking at a relative. You're looking at look where he is, what's the scenario, what's the context. You wouldn't obviously just give him a photo that his promise will do this. Rather, you look at his status, his other opportunities. There's so many things you look at. And if you visit the Fatwa Forum on the IFG website, you can see how we ask people about this. We ask people for the JD. We look at alternatives. And it's really good to view the Fatwa Forum because it makes you start thinking how scholars think inside and how they reason. So that's just touching upon employment and being a contractor. If you got this far, you must have enjoyed the podcast, which means you'll definitely love our other episodes and other content we produce as well, inshallah. Be sure to check out the website, islamicfinanceguru.com, as well as our YouTube channel and social media. Until next time, assalamu alaikum.